Rookie mistake. Uh, <laughs> Matthew chapter 12, 1 to 14 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 12, 1 to 14. Um, when you get married, there, there's something they, they tell you before you get married. You don't really realize this until after you're a little ways into it, that uh, things change when you get married. Uh, they tell you that. You can't fully appreciate it until you're in the midst of it, that things change. The things that she wants considered maybe cute, are no longer so cute. As an example, your clothing. Uh, You could come to a party dressed as a hobo, and she might say, look at him, he's so cute, dressed as underdress again. Because the truth be told, she can denounce you at any moment at that point. (laughs) But once the ring is on the finger... No longer can she denounce you, just as easy as that. So, you wake up one morning and you go into your closet, and they're clothes you've never seen before. And the jeans that you once broke in and you felt like you were just now getting into a groove with, the holes in the knees were just developed just so, they've disappeared altogether. You've got all new jeans and slacks that you've never seen before. Your clothes don't have the same stains that they once had that give signs of being good and broken in anymore. No, they've just disappeared altogether. And then not only that, but you get your new clothes on and you find as your wife leaves the house or whatever on one weekend, you have this little list. It's got a bunch of little check boxes on it. We call it the honeydew list. You know this? You're familiar with this? You've heard of this before, maybe. This honey-do list is a list of all kinds of things that she wants you to get done before she returns. My wife is smiling because she knows. <laughs> the honey-do list is things that you're supposed to do when, before she gets home. And you could look at that, and many husbands do make the mistake right at the beginning, right on the outset, so college students listen to me. Okay, very seriously, all right? You can look at that, as some do, and go, what am I? Am I a servant or a husband? What you come to find out is the line is really blurry between those two, okay? So you just know. And you ask yourself, am I a servant or a husband? And you can, if you choose, you can wad that thing up and you can throw it in the trash. And you can say, look, I am no person's servant. I'm the man of this household. I will do what I want. You could do that if you wanted to. I don't suggest it. But you could do it if you wanted to. The other way that you can look at the honey-do list is a list of ways that you can serve your wife. And all the women are elbowing their husbands right now going, yeah, see, this is what you should be doing, right? But you could see that list as something that indicates that you're a servant or a slave to your wife if you wanted to. I think that's the inappropriate way to look at it. Or you could potentially look at it as a way that you can serve your wife a way that you can express your love to your wife. See, when you look at a relationship between a husband and a wife, or you look at it, you compare it to a relationship of a servant and a master, there is a big, significant difference. It makes one different from the other. And that is that in a relationship from a husband and a wife, you love each other. See, with a servant and a master... You may get a same list of things that you're supposed to do. 
The difference is you don't have to love your master in order to do those things. You do it out of slavish obedience because you're afraid of what might happen on the other side. But when you get the same list from someone that you love, it's different. It's a way in which you can serve the one that you love. This morning we're looking in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 14, and in it, We're going to see Jesus and the Pharisees go toe-to-toe. This is really the first time in the gospel so far that we're going to see the Pharisees and Jesus come head-to-head to to the point where it amounts to a, a, a heated rivalry that we're going to see at the very end. And the battle is over the Sabbath day and what God actually desires from His children. So let's read in the Scriptures here in chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would, have, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we read this text, as we study it, as we seek to apply it to our lives, that you give us wisdom and insight into this text. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it, that we may be changed because we've encountered you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, we looked at the previous passage, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30, where Jesus, he's condemning a whole host of cities that have all heard him and John the Baptist preaching and teaching. All of those cities have listened to the preaching and teaching ministry of Jesus and John. They have witnessed Jesus coming in to do miracles and to heal and to teach. And yet, how have they responded? Not with repentance. They have not come forward to Jesus in repentance of sin, meaning they still didn't listen in spite of what they were seeing Jesus do and in spite of what they were seeing him teach. But Jesus ends that passage in chapter 11 
starting in verse 28, just look back there with me, just a few verses um, back in verse 28. He ends that passage with an appeal to everybody that's listening. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, it is no coincidence that in our passage this morning, we are now dealing with the day of the Jewish week that is the epitome of rest. Jesus has just talked about rest. He's just made an appeal to rest. He's just made an appeal for all those to come to him in repentance and faith that he would grant them rest. And now we're dealing with the Sabbath, which is the day of the week that rest is epitomized. Imagine for just a second, put yourself in a first century Jewish context. Everything on Saturday completely shuts down. Nothing works like it normally does throughout the rest of the week. Everything is completely shut down. Every business owner would cease to do business on that day. Every mom would not cook for her family. Every family would stop travel of any sort. Now, we freak out when Chick-fil-A shuts down on Sunday. Imagine a whole town of Chick-fil-A. That's all you've got. Nothing but Chick-fil-A. Now they did this. Why? Because the fourth commandment, which says this, it should appear on the screen behind me. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then again in Exodus 35, 2, we get this reminder. Whoever does any work on it, that is the Sabbath, shall be put to death. All right, so the stakes are really high for not doing any work on the Sabbath. So we know that for sure. The penalty is stiff. Now, don't think of 21st century America. 21st century America, at least in some capacity, um, you're working, uh, in, or sorry, in, in the past, in the first century Jewish context, you're working at least in some capacity seven days a week. Now, in modern America, 21st century America, five days a week is mostly what we're, what we're working. I realize some more, some a little less, but mostly a 40-hour workday, eight hours a day, five days a week is typically what we're expected to work. But not so in a first century. If you're working every day because you live hand to mouth, so you're working on Tuesday for food that your family is going to eat on Wednesday. That's what you're working. It's a day's wage. And that day's wage is going to buy food for the next day. So let me ask you this. What does it say about a Jewish society that just shuts down on one day a week? What are they doing? They're trusting that the Lord is going to supply enough Sunday through Friday to eat on Saturday. That they won't have to work but that they'll be able to prepare from all of the rest of the week's wage to be able to provide for their family on that day. Now, going back to Chick-fil-A for just a minute. 
We all know they follow the traditional blue laws. They close their store on Sunday, every single Sunday, all around the nation. Now, when they're profitable, and when all the business world looks at Chick-fil-A and says, wow, what do they say? They do all of that in six days, right? It's, it's, a, it's an anomaly to them. People look at Chick-fil-A and they think, you know, wow, how do they do it? Well, their chicken is addicting. That's how they do it. But beyond that, how do they do it? Everybody marvels at that. Well, the Jews were essentially saying the same thing uh, to the rest of the world. The rest of the world worked seven days a week. The rest of the world worked hand to mouth. But when they look at the Jews, they shut down one day a week. And it's a testimony to what they actually believe to be true about God, that he provides for you. So to violate the Sabbath, think about that for just a second, to violate the Sabbath, what are you effectively saying? If you overstep your boundaries as a Jew on the Sabbath day, you're saying to the whole community of Jews and to the rest of the world, I don't think God will provide for me. Perhaps even I don't believe in God. And I'm quite willing to step out there and accept the death penalty if that be the case. That's pretty brazen to overstep those kinds of boundaries. And if you did that, obviously the death penalty is required. Now, the Jews in Jesus' day lived under Roman law. They didn't live under Jewish law totally. So when it came to the death penalty, the Jews couldn't enact that. It was only the Romans that could do that. And you're going to see at the end of this book that that's who they appealed to to enact the death penalty. But I want to look at our first scene that we get to in the first half of this passage. What we're going to see here is Jesus's authority is asserted. Jesus is going to assert his authority over the Sabbath day. So Jesus and his disciples in verse one, they're walking through in the vicinity of a wheat field and they're hungry. And so they pluck heads of grain from the stalk and they begin to eat. Now, this at first looks to us like, well, they're taking grain from somebody else's grain field. That should ring some alarm bells, aren't they? Are they stealing? Is that what they're doing? And no, in fact, in Jewish law, it was provisioned so that you could actually go onto someone else's property, pluck from their, their field, and eat. So long as you plucked with your hand, you could not put in a sickle and reap. That was more than you could possibly eat. It was picking with your hand. That was perfectly legal. So what the, the Jesus and his disciples are doing is perfectly well within the boundaries of Jewish law. But the problem is not that they're taking from somebody else's field. The problem is that they're doing it on a Sabbath day, a day of complete rest. It's avoidance from all work, which we've already seen in the Old Testament scriptures. But the question the Pharisees are concerned with is what is work? What does it mean to work? It's a nebulous term. It lacks a little bit of definition. So how do you know when you've done it? How do you know if you've done work? So the Pharisees and the rabbis in Jesus's day had solved this dilemma. They came up with a list they broke down work into 39 different categories that you would consider work. This way, you would know if you had violated or were getting close to violating the fourth commandment. As I said, the stakes are really high. It's a death penalty, right? So God takes it very seriously, so we should as well. So they developed 39 categories that are Sabbath law. So it's important to remember that about as specific as the scriptures get when it comes to work on the Sabbath is 
don't do work on the Sabbath. That's about as specific as they get. There's a couple of examples that we get that are different commands on the Sabbath. Like as an example, you can't kindle a fire in your home on the Sabbath. Why? Because all your food was supposed to be cooked the day before. So you can't give to assign to anybody else that you're trying to cook a meal inside your home. So the Pharisees, the rabbis, they developed what is called the Mishnah, which is a commentary on the Old Testament. And they basically developed these 39 categories of work, and they call it offense around the fourth commandment. They're building a fence around the fourth commandment so that you know when you're getting close to violating God's law and might be put to death. So as an example, walking more than a half mile, they determined, well, that's work. All right, clearly. If you walk less than a half mile, you're fine. You walk more than a half mile, that's work. You'll might hear in the scriptures sometimes it's referenced as a Sabbath day's journey, meaning it's less than a half mile from where they're at. All right, harvesting. Well, that's obviously work. Threshing. Well, that's obviously work. Now, notice that Jesus and his disciples are engaged in both. They're plucking heads of grain. They're harvesting. They are rolling the heads of grain in their hands to separate the wheat from the husk. So they're threshing. That's work. Also, incidentally, just in case you wanted to know, writing two letters. That's work. Writing one letter? Well, obviously that's not work. So just so you know, we're up to date on what our work is and what it's not. But many of the daily activities that you would engage in on a regular basis are all considered work. And so you refrain from those on the Sabbath. But then we have another question. And this is the one Jesus seems to be concerned with. Who has the authority to declare what is and is not forbidden on the Sabbath? Who has that right? So if I were to ask the question to you, who has that right? It would probably be pretty obvious to you. I think God has that right, doesn't he? So Jesus is basically posing that question. Who has the right to determine what is and is not work on the Sabbath day? Not only have the rabbis and the Pharisees decided the answer to this question, they're also holding the entire community of Jews to account for their definition of what work is. And what people are permitted to do. So Jesus is going to introduce two exceptions to their rules. Where their rules violate scripture in the past. The first is David. He cites from Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 21 where David and his men, they're hungry. They go to Ahimelech, the high priest or the priest, and they ask him for food. And now the only food that he has access to is the bread of presence. The showbread, the holy bread that's there in the tabernacle. That's the only bread that he has access to. And the problem with that bread is that only priests are allowed to eat that bread. So David and his men look as though they're going to go hungry. However, Ahimelech gives the bread to David and his men and they eat the bread. Most importantly, nothing happens to them. They're not punished, they're not disciplined. The Lord doesn't condemn them in any way. No one actually looks at that and thinks that they've sinned in doing this. In fact, Jesus, when he's telling the Pharisees this in our passage, he gives the impression that David walked in and just took the showbread. And he should know he was there. So he says that David just walked in. He says in verse four that David entered the house of God. So the question 
is not about David doing something on the Sabbath. That's not what what Jesus is talking about initially. He's talking about eating in ways that you don't have permission to eat. He's talking about doing things that violate what has been established in the law. Now, who made the law so that it could determine only the priest could eat the bread? Who made that law? Well, God did. Who determines the punishment for eating the bread if someone other than the priests eat the bread? Well, God is the one that determines that punishment. He's the one that sets those boundaries. But notice that using David as an example, Jesus isn't making a point about the Sabbath. He's making a point about the one that has the authority to establish a transgression and to hold someone to account for transgressing the law. And what does it say about the law? That David wasn't punished. He's making the case to the Pharisees. Well, surely you'll admit that there are exceptions to the law, right? Surely you will admit in the case of hunger that someone should eat? I mean, haven't you read what is said about David and his men when they were hungry and they went into the temple? And that was perfectly acceptable. Haven't you read that? Don't you know? Then he uses another example there in verse 5. And he's slapping them on the face yet again. He says, have you not read in the law? Now, most likely, these Pharisees have large swaths, if not the entire Old Testament, committed to memory. And so he asks them, have you not read? This is elementary. Have you not read what is said in the law? The priests are supposed to work on the Sabbath day. There are exceptions to the Sabbath day's rest. The priests, as an example, are serving in the temple and they have certain duties that they're supposed to perform. Numbers 28, 9 and 10 should appear on the screen behind me. It says this, On the Sabbath day, two male lambs, a year old without blemish, and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Jesus' point is to the Pharisees is that they're not walking up to the temple and holding every priest in the temple to account, slapping them on the wrist and saying, ah, 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 you're working on the Sabbath. Well, that's preposterous. Of course they're not doing that. There's certain things that are required of people to perform on the Sabbath. And it's, it's idiotic to imagine that Jewish life completely shuts down with no exceptions. The priests are an example of the exceptions that are made on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees don't hold them to account. The Sabbath, while it is a day of rest, there are certain people that are conducting official business ordered by God on the Sabbath day. And I don't think Jesus actually believes that those priests are profaning the Sabbath day. He's using this as a bit of sarcasm toward the Pharisees. Well, if what you say is true, then what the priests are doing in the temple is profaning the Sabbath day. But surely you don't believe that. And of course they don't. But you see what Jesus is establishing here. He's establishing a value system. Not everything is strictly black and white. 
There is a system of values that you have in your heart that determine right and wrong. There are things that you intuitively know are more important of a priority on the Sabbath than resting. As an example, the needs of the temple are more important than a Sabbath day's rest. Case in point, the priests work in the temple because the needs of the temple are greater. But then what does Jesus say? I'm greater than the temple. Something greater than the temple is here among you. So then, if the priests are able to serve the temple because the temple's needs are greater, then what does it say about my servants if I'm greater than the temple? By the way, I think he's also saying I'm greater than David too because David was a servant to the temple as well. And if he's greater than the temple, then he's also greater than David too. So he then adds insult to injury in verse 7. He says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He quotes from Hosea 6.6 here, but just think back for just a second. He has quoted from Hosea 6.6 one time before in this gospel. And it was to the Pharisees, and it was back in chapter 9, verse 13. They saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, and they said to him, Why does your, or they said to his disciples, Why does your master eat with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus responds to them with Hosea 6 6, and he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is why I eat, because it's the sick that need the physician. Go and learn what this means. Now, we don't know if this is the exact same group of Pharisees or not. They're just called Pharisees, but we'll assume that they are, or at least Matthew wants us to think that they are. And so he's basically telling them, you didn't go and learn, did you? I gave you a homework assignment, and you're telling me your dog ate it, essentially. You didn't go learn what it meant. But you've got to understand, this is the deepest kind of criticism that a Pharisee could ever possibly receive because Jesus is basically telling them, you read the law, but you don't actually understand the heart of God. You read the law, you read his words, but you don't understand his spirit. As an example of this, they have enshrined into law a series of codes that don't adequately express the spirit of the law to rest on the Sabbath day, the law that God had originally written. So the condemnation here to the Pharisees is that they don't, they don't understand God. They don't understand the nature of God, nor do they understand the relationship, the nature of their relationship to Him. They don't understand what it means to be a son. All they understand is what it means to be a slave. And that's what they've submitted to. He tells them, if you had learned this, you would not have condemned the guiltless. But you see, the fundamental reason why the disciples are not accused, the fundamental reason why they are not guilty of violating Sabbath law is because they are serving the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath, he tells us in verse 8. 
The Son of Man is a term from Daniel 7 where one like the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and is granted dominion and power and authority over all kingdoms of the world. And Jesus is equating himself to the Son of Man. He is that character who has been given authority over all things. Now to the Pharisees, this is appalling. This is blasphemy. That Jesus would claim himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. That he would claim to be Son of Man. At the end of this book, in chapter 26, he's going to stand before Caiaphas on trial. And Caiaphas is going to ask him a very important question. Are you the Son of God? And he says, you have said so. And from now on, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He's referencing Daniel 7. Caiaphas gets this. And at that point, Caiaphas tears his clothes and accuses Jesus of blasphemy. And this is all the charge they need to bring him to the cross. So the the Pharisees understand very keenly what Jesus is referencing here. He's claiming something that is uniquely God's authority. This is God's authority. You're blaspheming the name of God. So they don't accurately interpret the law so as to recognize God's priorities, but they also don't recognize Jesus. You notice that? They don't recognize him. They don't see him for what he is. Now, ask yourself, you watch a guy with a withered hand all of a sudden have a a correct hand. You watch a person raised from the dead. You watch blind receive their sight and lepers cleansed. It's probably going to do something to your doubt, maybe a little bit, you would think but not for the Pharisees here. They're blinded. And so Jesus is asserting his authority over the Sabbath. And this is probably the reason why at the very next passage, they seek to test him, test his authority over the Sabbath. And so we've seen his authority asserted. Now we're going to see his authority confirmed in the next passage. Look at verse nine. He says, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And we have another example of a Sabbath day. Maybe someday, maybe that same day, or it may have been a week after or something like that. It was sometime close. We don't know. But he entered their synagogue. Remember back in 11.1, he is going into their towns, teaching and preaching. So it's not his hometown. It's somewhere away. But he, is, he enters their synagogue, and he is uh, teaching and preaching there. And it's probably the same area where his disciples have plucked the heads of grain. And so the Pharisees decide to set a trap for him that they might accuse him. And I think they understand, again, who Jesus is claiming to be. He's claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath. He's claiming to be the Son of Man. I think they understand exactly what that means, the problem is they don't believe him. So there's a man with a withered hand in the synagogue, and it appears that they're asking Jesus. They're using this man as an example, probably for debate. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They're expecting a conversation between Jesus and them. This is going to be a debate. It would be very common to have a debate in the town square, even a a debate in the middle of the synagogue. But they're expecting a debate between them and Jesus over whether it is legal to heal on the Sabbath or not. Um, Now Jesus is going to turn the tables on them. He doesn't answer their question directly. He won't actually engage in the theological debate. Instead, he's going to affirm his lordship over the Sabbath and the claim that he's just made about himself. So he first asks them a question. It's a rhetorical question. It's not meant to be answered. He asked them whether or not they would save their own sheep if it fell into a pit. 
The question is, what would you do if you stumbled upon your sheep that had fallen into a pit? A sheep is obviously very valuable for wool, for sacrifice, for meat, for a number of different things. But a human being is obviously infinitely more valuable. So he asked them, what would you do if you saw your sheep and had fallen into a pit? Of course you would save him. Notice that Jesus is not focused right now on the man himself. But in this scenario, the sheep's sheep's life is in danger. The man has lived with his withered hand for some number of years. His life isn't in peril at this very moment. But Jesus is making a general argument about healing. The person is in need of healing. He's in need of help. And he's the victim of a fallen world. What would you do? Would you rescue him if you could? Jesus has these encounters in the gospel a number of times. Actually, several times in the book of Luke, Jesus has these kinds of encounters around the Sabbath day with a number of people that he comes across, one of which is in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 14. Jesus has brought this woman to him who is crippled. She is hunched over. She is demonic. She has a a demon. And he calls this woman over to him. And it's the Sabbath day. And he heals her. So she straightens up. Well, he does this in or near the synagogue. And the ruler of the synagogue, think the pastor, has a problem with what's just happened. And so he says out loud, it says in verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. And not on the Sabbath day. Seems like a perfectly logical explanation, right? I mean, there, there's other days in the week. Do you have to be healed on the Sabbath day? Why not come on Friday or Monday or Sunday? Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So for Jesus, this is not a question of simply work. What is work? What is not work? The question is, is one of performing the deeds that are in line with God's own heart. What is God's own desire for us on the Sabbath day? What is God's desire for you? What kinds of works does he want you to be doing? His law was never meant to harm anyone or to leave anyone in the midst of harm. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, in other words. It was meant to free you from burden, not put more burden on you. So then... Notice in our passage that he doesn't say it's legal to heal on the Sabbath. He doesn't say that. He said it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do. In other words, God wants you engaged in good works. He wants you exercising what's in his own heart. But the Pharisees don't get this. Why? Why? Because they don't understand the heart of God. 
who desires mercy and not sacrifice. They don't understand the nature of the relationship that God desires from his people. Not slavish obedience, but spousal obedience. You know the difference between the two? Not slavish obedience, but spousal love. Who made his law for your benefit. Who commands obedience because it's for your good. So Jesus is there before the Pharisees and he, before they can respond, he heals the man's hand. And so it proves yet again that he has authority to determine the proper use of the Sabbath. He is God in the flesh and has the ability to validate the claims that he's just made about him being Lord of the Sabbath and to determine what the Sabbath should and can be used for. But for the Pharisees who are probably expecting to debate to see a Jesus that not only won't debate with them, won't let them answer the questions that he's posed, but actually heals the man that they're using as an example, they actually don't take that kindly, shockingly enough. What do they do? They, in the next verse, they go to develop a plot to destroy him. So irony of ironies, conspiracy to commit murder is not work on the Sabbath day. I think we're supposed to see that as ironic in this passage. So understand what's going on in the scene. The Pharisees don't understand the heart of God and therefore they cannot interpret his laws the way that they're intended. Remember, for murder, they think so long as I don't kill my brother, I'm okay, I'm, I'm obeying God. But then Jesus comes along and he says, but what about anger? Are you angry with your brother in your heart? Then you've already committed murder. Well, they think, okay, so long as I don't actually have an affair or commit adultery on my wife, I I haven't cheated on her. Jesus comes along and says, what about lust in your heart? What, What about that? Isn't that sin? But here Jesus is saying it's not just in what is in regards to sin, not just in works that are in regards to sin, it's also in regards to your good works, the works that you actually do the works that you accomplish. The Pharisees say, look, I don't work on the Sabbath. I have 39 law codes. All of these codes show me how I'm getting close to committing a sin against God on the Sabbath day. And I am careful to stay away from all 39 of those codes. But Jesus is saying, but what about extending mercy to someone? Your codes have prohibited you from doing that. But that's actually in line with God's heart. In the same way that lusting after someone is, in, is out of line, just like adultery is. In the same way that anger in your heart against someone is out of line in the same way that murder is. So also, the Sabbath is meant to relieve people of burden, not put more burden on them. It's supposed to lighten the load, not make it heavier, which ironically is just what Jesus has promised to them in the previous passage that he would do. What about eating because you're hungry? You think God's intention is to starve you because of his law? Absolutely not. 
to keep you from trusting in your own provision. That's the heart of the message of keeping the Sabbath day holy. It's to keep you from trusting in your own provision, but trust the Lord is going to provide. The Pharisees can only interpret God's law as a slave. They don't understand how to live under God's law as a son. But do you realize that many of us see following Christ in the same way? That many of us understand following Christ the same way the Pharisees did. Many Christians live as slaves, always working and never resting. Always working and never resting. When it comes to good works, it's a way of impressing God. Look at all the good things that I did. I value my week based on how good I did that week. As if it's a way of impressing God. When it comes to repentance... We turn to God and we confess all the things that God caught us in so that we can come clean. Yeah, okay. Let me just own up to all these things real quick because I I know I'm supposed to. Here's the things that I didn't do. Here's the things that I did do. Hopefully God at the end of the day will be impressed. Hey, they did all these things, but at least at the end, they turned and, and confessed them to me. Look, the sermon that I preached last week was tough. For me, for everybody, I think, Jesus is calling us to repentance. And he's saying to us, look, if, if you're not repentant, you're not mine. Amen. And that's tough to hear sometimes. I think when we think about those sermons that are typically kind of labeled turn or burn sermons, or those sermons that are typically out there as, as fire and brimstone kind of sermons, they're tough to hear when repentance is commanded, it's, it's, it's tough for us to hear. When we hear, come to Christ in repentance, you're, or you're not his, it's hard to hear. But the appeal to the child of God is one who actually looks to Christ and understands what he's done for you. First, that's what happens when the lights come on in your mind, in your heart. When the lights come on, when your eyes are opened to the truth, you look and you see what Christ has done for you on the cross. And it changes everything about the way you operate. You look at what Christ has done, that he lived perfectly on your behalf. That not only that, but then instead of taking the rewards that he rightfully earned, he went to the cross and he suffered the wrath of God on your behalf so that you wouldn't have to. So it's not a matter of just coming clean. He's already caught you on the cross. You're already dead to rights there. But he also poured out his wrath on Christ so that he has no more wrath stored up for you. Do you see that? When the lights come on and you understand that, There's nothing between you and God that's wrathful. But rather, you've been conformed into the bride of Christ. It's not a slavish relationship. It's a spousal relationship. It's one of love, not fear. It's one of love and not slavery. He has no more wrath for you. But the reality of our sin that we continually live in and go back to from time to time is just like taking that list, that honeydew list, crumpling it up and throwing it in the trash can. You're telling your spouse, I hate you. 
It's a matter of how our sin grieves him. Is that the way that you would want to live with a spouse? It's not. Is that the way you would interpret the commands of obedience from a spouse? It's not. What we would want to do instead is live our lives to die for them, to communicate our love for them. In fact, Christ tells husbands that in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The call from God to his church to obedience is exactly that, that we're coming in obedience, confessing our sin, because to be honest with you, my sin makes me miserable. I still wallow in it. I still live in it. I still do it and commit sins all the time. But they make me miserable because I know what that does to the heart of God. But God isn't trying to catch you in some sin and getting you to come clean. Because sin isn't making you any less of a son or daughter than you already are. It's not doing anything to the marriage. But sin is intentionally grieving Christ. So in salvation, your heart is transformed into a heart of love. From a heart of slavery into a heart of love. And so obedience is no longer merely a list of do's and don'ts, but it's how we communicate love to our spouse. we've been transformed truly if we've come to Christ then our joy should be obedience and confession of sin repentance of sin is getting rid of that which does not give us joy period so what Christ is offering to his people is to understand your relationship to him is a son or a daughter in the kingdom. That he has no more wrath for you if you are in Christ. And if you're not, turn from your sin, repent, believe in Jesus Christ because there is no more freedom than that. And live the life of true rest. That's how we find rest in Christ. Coming clean of all sin and realizing that it's only in Him that we have forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for our heart's position before You. That truly the lights would come on that we would understand what you have done for us on the cross. That repentance, confession of sin, turning from sin, enjoying rest in you, true Sabbath rest, is our heart's desire. Not slavish obedience, but true rest. Lord, we know that you came to give us peace. And we pray that we would find it in Christ. Father, you know better than I do that there's people in this very room who have spent their lives living in slavish obedience to Christ and are here to check a box. 
I pray that you would relieve them of that obligation. To feel like they're fulfilling fulfilling some law that isn't there. But that instead, coming here to worship would be a true joy. One that we seek out, one that we come every Sunday out of the joy and exuberance in our heart to worship the one who saved us. To worship the one in whom is life. To worship the one that emptied his wrath on Christ for us. I pray that this would be our heart's position now and always in Jesus' name. Amen.